This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. Our scripture today comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. It can be found on pages on page 1003 in your Black Pew Bible. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Morning, everyone. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we're really glad that you're here. Would you all join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, I'm burdened this morning for my friends in this room. who are walking through things that are difficult, who are trying really, really hard um, to believe you and to do what you say. So we need help. We need lots of help. We'll always need you. There isn't a moment in our future where we won't be in need of you for breath and life to hold everything together for our own existence. And we need you right now. We need you to change us. We need you to open our eyes so that we can see you. We need you, Holy Spirit, to empower our obedience so that it's love from our heart, it's obedience from our hearts and not self-righteous Pharisaism. The Christian life isn't like ripping off a Band-Aid. It takes endurance. It takes endurance. So would you speak? Would you comfort the weary? Would you cut down the prideful? And would you encourage everyone in this room, I ask, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, John John Owen once said, what doth enliven and animate obedience in the Christian heart, but love, but love. And Jesus said, if you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. Jesus explains the distinction between love and obedience being that love is the foundation of all Christian obedience. When we talk about obedience in the Christian life, we're talking about love in action, Love does things. Love's operational in the world through obedience to Jesus and obedience to his word. For obedience to be true obedience, it must be loving obedience from the heart. Again, what what sums up all the commands of the Old Testament? What sums up all the instructions and all the procedures and all the ordinances of God in the Ten Commandments? But love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind 
and all of your soul and all of your strength. That's the law and the prophets. And Galatians 5, 6 tells us that the old requirement of the law functions very differently now. It says, for in Christ Jesus, circumcision and uncircumcision don't count for anything. What does count? What does count for something? Only faith working through love. Which is why James can say, show me your faith. Let me see your faith. Faith isn't invisible. Because faith works through love. And love saturated and love fueled and love motivated obedience to Jesus. You see, Christ obeyed. Jesus obeyed to the point of death. He obeyed to the point of death on a cross because of love. Sin is transgression against God's law, and Jesus never transgressed the law of God. So today, I want to provide a few references to the sinless nature of Jesus. Help us believe that and understand that. And then I want to develop one explanation of why he was sinless. The Bible says that Jesus had no sin. Now, his body was weak like our body. It suffered from the consequences of the fall like our bodies do. He had emotional and psychological distress like we do. He suffered in his body during obedience, much like the way your body will suffer in pain in this life as you seek to demonstrate your obedience to God. Jesus was sinless. And I want us to absorb why that should matter to us. Why does that theological reality and fact about Jesus, what implications does that have in how we see the world and how we live our lives? First, I want us to examine a couple passages that speak about him being sinless. And we'll start with today's passage. So Hebrews 4 14 and 15 says, Since then we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." In this text, the fact that Jesus can sympathize with our weakness and the fact that Jesus has been in every respect tempted like we are tempted is supposed to do something. It's meant to change how we relate to our own weakness and our own temptation because human beings are tempted to believe that nobody can sympathize with our weakness. That nobody knows what it feels like to be me. That no one knows what it feels like to struggle with my struggles. And both of those things are lies, and they try to keep us from trusting Jesus, from throwing ourselves onto him. You see, those lies are unbelief working in our minds and in our emotions. And even in this moment, we're tempted by our own sinful flesh to be suspicious of this claim from Hebrews. Does the Bible really say that? Can God really sympathize with my weakness? Did God really say in the world the flesh and the devil would love 
nothing more than for you to apply the ointment of self-pity to your wounds instead of taking the Bible at its word. Your enemy wants you to see your own weakness and your own suffering as worse than everybody else's, as more unique and more compounded than other people. The spirit of our age wants you to look at the multiple ways that you suffer and then take them all and stack them up one on top of the other and then judge who's got the highest stack of suffering and then that person gets to be justified in blaming everybody else for what they're going through. If all your pain and all your suffering and all your disappointment or all the ways that other people have wronged you, if you have more examples than everybody else, then this world tells you that you should feel very alone and you should make it your mission to find out whose fault that is and then punish that person. That's the kind of recurring theme of our culture. That's what's in the water. But that formula robs you robs you of something beautiful and it robs you of something powerful. The writer of Hebrews is offering you something deeper and more thorough than the poisonous ointments that the world's handing out. So I want to ask this morning for the people in this room, man, are you hurting? Jesus knows what that's like. Are you overwhelmed with grief? Jesus was a man of sorrow and he was acquainted with grief. Are you being assaulted with temptation? Jesus was tempted in every way. Are you alone? Has everyone you loved left you? Jesus knows what it is to be abandoned by his closest friends. Have you been betrayed by people who love you? Have you had to walk the excruciating path of watching people who were supposed to be your friends slowly turn into your enemies? Jesus knows what that kind of betrayal feels like. Jesus was affected by this life. He was affected by it. He didn't run around in some kind of magical force field that protected him from pain or worry. He suffered the kind of suffering that we suffer day in and day out. He wasn't immune to physical pain. He wasn't immune to psychological anguish. He wasn't immune to emotional duress. He suffered all of it during his real and gritty and earthy life here. He was impacted by all the awful events of his life just like we are impacted by all the events of our lives Never mind just the daily struggle of what it means to be human. He had all the same human needs that we feel. He was tempted to satisfy them sinfully. In the desert, he was tempted to satisfy hunger, a legitimate human desire and need. He was tempted to satisfy that need sinfully. He was tempted by all the things that were tempted by, and he never sinned. Never so let me ask something this morning. I want us to look at, I want us to think about what's a lie that we're believing in our lives regarding how we engage and how we relate to our own weakness. What are places in our lives that our own weakness in our lives tries to convince us to believe lies? Now, I know we can memorize right answers, but I want to invite us to interrogate and, and get deep with our answers here and ask ourselves, what lies are we believing right now about the weakness and frailty that we experience in our own lives 
that comes out in being irritated with everybody around us or leaks out in phrases like they always or they never. It comes out in outbursts of anger and uncontrollable emotions. One lie that we have to face is that our challenges are somehow unique in a way that justifies our sin or justifies our outbursts or justifies bitterness or, or unforgiveness. The lie is that nobody understands and we can be really industrious to rationalize that lie. And I'm, I'm, I'm a chief offender here. You see, I don't even have to try If I've treated my wife poorly or my kids poorly, my mind goes in a hyperactive mode to explain to my pride why I'm justified for what I said or what I did. I don't have to try to focus to do this. It just sparks a kind of chain reaction in my sinful flesh that starts firing off with reasons that I'm exempt from guilt. It's remarkable how my flesh can stack up reasons to get me out of trouble automatically. And many of those reasons are stacked up on the foundational lie that my situation is somehow special or unique that makes my actions justified, makes my actions. And when I say that, I mean both internal emotional realities and outside words and deeds. Our sinful flesh tries to justify, justify those kind of reactions. But our weakness is actually a gift in our lives. Our challenges are gifts in our lives. And how they function is that they filter deep sins of our hearts. And they push them up to the surface of our lives so that we can face them and be free from them. So where are you justifying a sinful attitude in your life? Where are you rationalizing ugly speech, perhaps to your wife or your kids? Where are you justifying disrespect or frustration with your husband? Where's your flesh being offended? And where can you apply the truth that your offense isn't unique? It isn't beyond being responded to with love. It isn't justifiable. We're tired. We're weak. We feel like we don't have what it takes, but the Spirit of God empowers us to believe and then obey. The Spirit of God empowers us to repent and keep going. So let me ask, is your weakness overwhelming you this morning? I want to invite you to look to Jesus. He's been there. Are your emotional battle, battle scars from years of broken relationships, are they tempting you to become cold? Are they tempting you to become distant? Then I want to invite you to turn to Jesus. Is your own suffering tempting you to punish somebody else or tempting you to blame someone for your misfortune? Man, don't do it. Don't do it. It won't work the way you hope it will. Turn to Jesus. Turn to a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness, who knows what it's like to be tempted, who knows, who knows, but he never gave in. He never sinned. Listen to this quote from theologian Stephen Wellam. 
Jesus recognized sin in others, but, he ne- but never in himself. He showed no consciousness of sin, never prayed for his own forgiveness, and commanded others to repent of their sins without ever repenting himself. Jesus even challenged his enemies to find fault with him when he said things like, which one of you convicts me of sin in John chapter 8? Moreover, Jesus claimed to have kept all of his father's commands and to have fulfilled all righteousness. Jesus saw himself as neither a sinner by nature nor a sinner by individual transgression. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 John 2.1 says, If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, the righteous one. And in John's gospel, he says, Jesus appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy by being the perfect sacrifice without blemish and without spot. Jesus suffered weakness and he suffered temptation and he never sinned. Jesus sympathizes with our weakness, but he doesn't sympathize with our sin. He doesn't sympathize with our disobedience. The grace of God to us is that we're given the Spirit of God and the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, to kill sin, to expose it and kill it. You don't have to believe the lie that Jesus sympathizes with your disobedience. You don't want to believe that lie because if you do, you'll stay trapped in your sin and you won't get free. The Bible tells us that God's mindful of our frame. He's mindful of our finiteness. He's mindful of the fact he knows that we are just dust. But the Bible never excuses sin because of human weakness. And that's important to understand, not because we want to impress everyone about how righteous we can be. It's important to understand because I don't want us to suffer the pain that sin always brings into our lives. Sin's always busy killing something, hurting someone, pushing you away from God. And I I don't want you to excuse your sin and call it weakness or call it struggling because I don't want you to be hurt and I don't want the people around you to continue to suffer the consequences. Sin's destructive. It's busy and active destroying things. It destroys relationships. It destroys families. It destroys society. You don't want to diagnose your sin as weakness because sin and weakness have different prescriptions. They have different cures. And I want to see you set free. And freedom won't come if we misdiagnose our sin. And freedom won't come if we're unwilling to identify sinful patterns and attitudes in our lives. Disobedience isn't weakness. Weakness might be one of the ingredients to your situation, but weakness is weakness and disobedience is disobedience. And that will hurt you in the long run. We know in our own lives how unchallenged disobedience hurts us, how it works, because we have children, many of us. And we don't discipline our kids because their disobedience is, our little kids, because their disobedience is destroying our family. 
We discipline them when they're little so that they won't do the kinds of disobedience that will destroy their families in the future when they're grown. Ultimately, we discipline our kids because we want them to respond to the authority of God in the right way. That's the point. Jesus suffers with our weakness, sympathizes with your weakness. He does not find solidarity in sinful disobedience. He does something better. He gives us the spirit of God so that we can fight our sin and see it killed and be truly free, little by little by little. Any place in your lives, any place in my life that I make peace with sin or disobedience, I'm making peace with slavery. Sin is slavery. The slavery of arrogance and prideful critique. The slavery of envying other people. The slavery of coveting. The slavery of frustrated anger. The slavery of, sh- of a short temper. The slavery of demanding our own way. The slavery of having to have more likes. The slavery of approval seeking. The slavery of having to have control over other people and other situations. The slavery of laziness. The slavery of sloth, of disrespect, of lack of love, of haughtiness, of selfish ambition, of jealousy, of anxious unbelief. The slavery of believing that you have to be or have it worse than everybody else. The slavery of self-pity, of lust. We aren't free when we make peace with that destructive power of sin in our lives. We aren't free when we make peace with disobedience. We're in chains. Don't allow yourself to hear the text today and believe that Jesus is cool with my sin or cool with my disobedience. He isn't. He has compassion on our weakness, but he hates our sin. It demeans other people. It demeans the glory of God. And we have to kill it on the regular if we want to be free people. Because Jesus obeyed. He obeyed. He obeyed all the way to the cross. Now, I want to highlight a really important why for us related to the doctrine of Jesus's sinlessness. For the rest of our morning, I want to talk about I want to talk about a concept surrounding the sinlessness of Jesus that I hope will have an impact in how you see the world and how you see each other. We've already seen the Bible claims that Jesus is sinless and it claims that he's compassionate towards our weakness. So I want that to comfort us. I want that to fill us with courageous zeal, zeal to confess our own weakness and our own sin and be able to repent even now, right now, today. But the why, the why in the story of redemption for Jesus' sinlessness is a bigger, grander, more glorious picture than just how we interact with it on the ground. The Gospels walk us down the path of Jesus' life. And we even just finished studying the Sermon on the Mount that explains the values of the kingdom of God. Jesus lived and he taught us things. And then he died and then he was raised from the dead. And in the Gospels, we get 
We get the advantage of kind of inhabiting the story of Jesus. We kind of get to inhabit his life on the ground, the paths he walked, the conversations he had, the people he looked to and was around. And on the ground, that should comfort us. It should comfort us that Jesus was sinless and that he sympathizes with our weakness. It's right and good for that to bring us comfort and encouragement. But the sinlessness of Jesus, the sinlessness of the Christ, the anointed one, God's Messiah, is an essential ingredient to this cosmic providence and purposes of God for all of creation. This is massive. This is massive. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God made man in his image. He made them male and female. Created he them. And mankind was named Adam. And the first man was named Adam. He's given a helper, his wife, named Eve. And together, they're called Adam, mankind. Adam and Eve are placed in the garden to be vice regents over all creation. They have everything they need in this garden. And in addition to that, they get to be with God. They get to walk with him in the cool of the day and talk to him and be with him without any barriers. But that didn't last very long. Adam, Adam and Eve, mankind rebelled. Eve was deceived. And she ate from the forbidden tree and she handed it to Adam. And Adam didn't protect the garden. He didn't protect Eve. He disobeyed God and he ate from the forbidden tree. In paradise, they were naked and completely unashamed. But after they disobey, they are naked and deeply ashamed. And God comes looking for Adam and God says, who told you? How did you find out? Who told you that you were naked? Did you, did you do it? Did you eat from the tree that I told you not to? And at this point, sins ruined everything. Sins fractured the relationship between God and mankind because Adam didn't only act for himself. He was the head of the human race. He was our representative head. And when he sinned, the Bible tells us that all of us sinned in Adam. So what does he do? What does God do in this moment? He kills a lamb and covers their shame. And now now everybody, you and me and our coworkers and our neighbors and everybody that we meet, we need somebody to cover our shame. But only a lamb without spot or blemish. Only someone innocent can cover my shame. That's why Jesus had to be sinless. He had to be without spot or wrinkle. In the beginning, in the beginning, out of God's infinite joy and love in the Trinity, he spilled out in his infinite good pleasure to create everything, to create the world, which included man and woman, created in his image to experience his glory and his goodness and his creation. And all of mankind was doomed in Adam's sin. And that makes for a terrible ending, except that we find out through the storyline of redemption throughout the Bible that God has a bigger, more glorious plan. He won't let mankind's rebellion have the last word on their future or the future of everything. 
the future of everything. This is why Jesus had to be sinless. This is why the sinlessness of Jesus is more than just a theological fact for, for, for thick books. Jesus is the second Adam. He's the last Adam. One author says, by headship we were damned, and through headship again we shall be saved. Jesus had to be a man and he had to be a sinless man to be the second act of God's creation story. That's why John 1 sounds like Genesis 1. That's why. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Adam, all died, the Word of God tells us. But in the second Adam, all will be made alive. Jesus lived a life that we can examine in the Gospels But the rest of the New Testament explains that God's making things. He's remaking the entire human race. And Jesus is the first one. That should blow our minds. The story of Christianity is not some subset of the history of the world. It isn't a religion founded on some obscure Middle Eastern belief structures. It's the only way to have a comprehensive understanding of cosmic realities of the universe. God created everything. He created mankind once in the garden and he's doing it again right now in Jesus Do you want to be a part of the program of new creation and place all of your faith in Jesus, all of your hope in Jesus, all of your trust in Jesus Christ through faith? You're you're united to him in a death like his so that you can be united to him in a life, in a resurrection life like his. The resurrection isn't some version of you 2.0. It's entrance into the new beginning. A new creation story. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve. And in Christ, he's writing another Genesis story where Christ is the priest. He's the sacrifice. He's our rest. Christ is how we get to be in the presence of God again. All of it. All of it. The garden was a temple. The relationship with God and mankind was strong and real and alive and vibrant in the garden. And Jesus makes that garden possible again. This is what he's doing. And that's why he had to be sinless. He never ate from the tree. That's the point. He never ate from the tree. Obedience isn't slapping our hands away from delight and delicious food that we really, 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 really want. Obedience is the spirit-wrought freedom to stay away from food that will kill you. Jesus says it over and over and over again. I only do. I only do what I see the Father doing. He says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. He says, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus explains to us over and over and over that he obeyed so that a sinless substitute could die and then conquer death and come back so that when we meet Jesus, when you meet Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all there. They're all right there again to create something new just like the Word and the Father and the Spirit were there in the beginning of creation to make something out of nothing. 
In the beginning, Adam sinned and ruined everything, but God wasn't done, and he's not done right now. This is why the scripture says, it was the same God who called light out of darkness, who has shown in your hearts to reveal the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what God's doing in our hearts when he looks right into our dead, dark hearts and says, let there be light. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. And he can do that because of what Jesus did. And that's hard for us to grasp. And it's even harder for us to keep at the center of our hearts and lives. And especially, especially when it's dark out there. It's hard to hold on to when the pain is really fresh or when the money's gone. What's God, what God is doing is much, much bigger than only us. The Genesis story, the redemption story, Jesus' life on earth, his obedience all the way to the cross, all of it is the same story. All of it's the same story. I want us to experience that kind of newness. I want you to be made new. I want you to know him. He obeyed, Jesus obeyed all the way to the bottom. In Adam, you couldn't. He obeyed all the way to the bottom because in Adam, you didn't even want to. He obeyed all the way to the bottom. That's the bottom of pain and the bottom of human weakness, the bottom of suffering and the bottom of temptation, the bottom of grief and sorrow and shame and utter humiliation. He was naked and bloody and beaten on a cross, no, not so that there could be some small, quaint, interesting religion called Christianity. He obeyed all the way to the cross so that the universe, the whole thing, could be remade. He's the reason for everything. And his sinlessness was absolutely an essential ingredient. Romans 5 1 Corinthians 15, make it plain. Everything in all of history converges on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus because through him the grave is made empty and God's reconciling everything to himself. Everything in all the universe converges on Christ because through Jesus, God's making a new creation story and this time the ending will be different forever. Forever. But you can't be new, you can't be made new if you don't die first. You can't be made new if you don't think you need him. You can't be new if you're the center of your own story. You can't be new if you don't know that you're a sinner. You can't be new if you don't understand that you need a doctor and this isn't the kind of sickness that's passive. This isn't the kind of sickness that you just catch. We're guilty for the sickness that's killing us and killing other people. Sin isn't a disease that you catch and isn't your fault. Sin is your guilt before a holy God for loving darkness because our deeds are evil. We don't do evil because we can't help it. We do evil because we love darkness. And you can't be made new if you still love darkness. But the spirit of the living God, the spirit of the living God is here right now. Jesus is here. And you don't have to keep loving darkness. He can make you hate darkness and love the light. Jesus is the light and life 
of mankind. If you want life in you, you need Jesus. If you want to walk in the light, come to Jesus. If you want to be whole, plead with Jesus to heal you and save you and make you whole in him. If you don't see the darkness as darkness, then cry out to him. Ask him. If you're experiencing a single ounce of conviction this morning, if you're feeling any, even the slightest inkling of a desire to be made new in Christ, then today, Hebrews says, if you're hearing his voice, and if you're hearing his voice at all, don't harden your hearts. Come to him. Turn from your ways and turn to Jesus instead. Repent. Give up. You can't save yourself and nothing you're doing is working. Turn. Turn to Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you know, and you know that you're harboring hidden sin in your life, maybe, maybe you're harder, harboring some kind of resentment or hate towards your wife. Or maybe you're har- harboring frustration and disrespect towards your husband. Or maybe you're harboring anger and bitterness towards your parents. Or maybe you're harboring frustration and irritation and judgment with your roommate. If you're in that spot, don't be a slave this morning. Repent. Jesus stood against all temptation to sin so that he could be the sacrifice for your sin that gets you forgiveness and gets you the Holy Spirit that dwells in you so that you can kill and defeat sin in your body right now, today, this morning. Don't make peace with a yoke of slavery. Jesus was sinless because you never could be, ever. Look to the cross and repent and leave your sin and embrace true and lasting freedom. I don't care this morning if you've been a Christian for five minutes or 50 years. It doesn't matter. The sinless Savior died. He died in the likeness of sinful flesh so that our sinful flesh can be crucified can be killed, can be crucified more and more and more. Today, this morning, don't be afraid to identify your sin. Identify it, name it, confess it, and turn from the power of sin to the cross. Turn to Jesus. Turn to the Holy Spirit and through the grace of God. Abandon your sin. Every sin that you get victory over is because of grace. And one day, One day, Jesus' new creation work will be completed and we won't battle. We won't battle with sin any longer. But until that day, proclaim, keep proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and fight the fight of faith, which is your fight for more freedom in this life. Jesus' sinlessness is huge, is huge. It's huge. What he's up to. What he's up to is making something new. He's making us new. He's making everything new. So this morning, as we move towards communion for the last section of our service, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke the bread. And then he said, this is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That's what we do when we take communion. We're proclaiming Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to the watching world, and we're proclaiming it to each other. This is Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood shed for your life. If you're a Christian this morning, if you're putting all of your faith and hope and trust in Jesus to make you righteous before God, then we invite you to come and celebrate that and proclaim it by taking communion with us this morning. The way we do it here is we we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. We'll have two stations down here in front of me. And we'll have two, oh, a station up in the balcony. We'll also have a station over here to my far left that is gluten-free and single serve. And we'll also have prayer ministers down here in the front underneath the stained glass window who would love to pray for anybody in this room about anything. And they're here every Sunday. So... I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for us. And then the servers are going to come forward and the, and the uh, musicians are going to come back up. I'd invite you to take a second and reflect. Invite the Holy Spirit to pinpoint something in your heart and in your life to repent of, to see the Spirit of God transform, perhaps spark a conversation with somebody you love. Would you all uh, bow your heads with me as I pray? Jesus, we believe that unless we eat your body and drink your blood, that we won't have any life in us. We have to be completely dependent on you for everything. Look to you for everything. See you as divine. See you for who you are. Holy Spirit, would you please come and awaken us to new areas in our hearts and lives that we're resistant to your transformation. That we bristle, that we kick against the goads of transformation in our lives. Would you help us to understand that the sinlessness of Jesus is part of a, of a cosmic story that nothing's going to be like it was. Nothing's going to be like it has been. You're changing everything. You're changing everything. Help us to see that and help us to love it, I ask. Would you minister to our hearts as we come forward and take communion this morning, Holy Spirit, I ask. In the name of Jesus, amen.